Good evening. It is good to see each one of you. If you will, take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and we'll continue in our series about love. And the Bible that's in the pew there, if you need to borrow that, it'll be 1,021. It will be the page number, 1,021, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. It's great to see our young people back. Many of them were at Rush this weekend at Fried Hardeman University, and we're thankful for their willingness to invest their life in a spiritual weekend and treatment like that. And also, we're thankful to have the Faith Builders class back. They were in an encampment uh, retreat uh, this week at Salt Lick, wherever that is, and uh, we're glad that they're back safely and had a great weekend, and uh, they came back this afternoon. It is good to be together, and thinking about being together, that's one of the great things about Family Day and being at the park together is that a lot of us end up hanging out together for three or hours or so by the time we worship together and eat together and then just hang around a little longer. You don't have to hang around that long if you don't want to, but we want everybody to come. And it'll begin at four o'clock, morning worship services and Bible classes, same schedule as usual. But then at four o'clock, we'll be worshiping in the park there at Charlie Daniels Park. And then at five o'clock, we'll enjoy a catered meal together, a little bit different from some of the years past. So just in case some of you are wondering, hey, is the announcement maybe did I mix, mix it up in your mind? You didn't. In years past, uh, you did bring side dishes. This year we're going to go with uh, a catered meal that is going to be chicken fingers and then baked beans will be the side dish with chips. And then we're asking our members to bring either cookies or brownies, enough for their family and just three or four more other people. And so if you'll do that, uh, the drinks are provided. It ought to be real simple. We're trying to make it simple enough that, that you can really uh, relax and enjoy the afternoon. And, uh, and so you, most of you know the routine. Come a little bit early because we park, most of us park over behind the middle school there at around 3.15, 3.30. Gives you plenty of time to shuttle over and then any of you that need to park closer, uh, there are handicapped parking places very close there. And uh, we look forward just being together and worshiping together and eating together and, and enjoying each other's fellowship and activities together. If I were to ask you, what do you really enjoy? What do you really enjoy? You know, in America, becoming more and more consumed with sports, it's safe to say that Americans, the typical, the typical American really enjoys their sports. And I think that's really produced a culture where we really love to win. There's such a, a high price tag placed on winning today. Some people, they really enjoy making money. Like when they get that extra bonus or, or they get an extra sale, it just, it just lights them up. It just makes their day. You can tell it really, really brings enjoyment to them that, that they've made some extra money. Some people really enjoy their weekends. Are you one of those people or do you work around those type of people that starting on Monday morning, they start living for the weekend? They just can't wait for Monday through Friday to get by so that they got the weekend. And some of them, they enjoy it just because they hate their job. And others, they enjoy it because they're planning on doing some immoral things over the weekend that they're probably not going to do as much of during the middle of the week. What is it that you enjoy? Some people enjoy a new house. They really do. They enjoy it. They enjoy a new car. 
Some really enjoy new clothes. Some of you ladies, maybe just a few men, you may really enjoy a new hairstyle. What is it that you enjoy? Tonight, we want to spend our time on one verse that describes love, and I would offer to you that unless we study it in the context that it's written, we usually don't think about love in this way at all. But that's what's so beautiful and challenging about this topic as we studied out of 1 Corinthians 13. He's telling us some things that love is, and he begins in this verse by telling us some things that love is not. And he tells us some things that love does not rejoice in. If we really do love God as we should, and we really do love others as we should, and even if we love ourselves as we should, we're not going to practice this. We're not going to even rejoice in it, much less practice it. And then there's some things that, if we love as we should, there are things that we're going to do. I want to remind you of, of just a few things here as, as we look in our Bible. You remember, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, but what we haven't looked at in, in probably five or six weeks is that reminder of how it ends. Look at verse 13. And now abides faith hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We're studying about what the Lord would say is the greatest. As a matter of fact, when they came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't hesitate to say, it's love. Love the Lord and God with all your heart, soul, mind, and that's the first and greatest, and the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Colossians, the third chapter, he gives a, a, li a lengthy list of things in verse 12 and 13, beautiful things, tender mercy and, and forgiveness and all kind of characteristics like that. But then he gets to verse 14 and he says, and above all these things, put on love. We're not just studying something tonight that, that I would hope if we open scripture and we study it, we'd say, well, that's interesting. We're not just studying something interesting. We're studying something that God says, this is the greatest. You and I must give our all to learning what is it that God calls and describes as love so that then we can go out and live what God describes as love. What a beautiful, beautiful challenge. You know, for many weeks, we've been emphasizing the fact that love is so easy to misunderstand. In our English language, we misuse the word love so much that it has very little meaning. And so it's great to be able to go to a passage where Paul doesn't mix any words up. We can look at it, and even though it, it might challenge us, and it might even surprise us where just like tonight, we might look at this and say, I really never thought about that being love. But Paul says, this is love. And one of them, he says, this is not love. And so tonight, will you open your mind, will you open your heart, and let's commit to learning this, and then let's commit to going out this week and better living the love that God says is the greatest that among all, even greater than faith and hope. First three verses, life minus love equals nothing. So what is it? 
Just give the setting. Let's look at verse 4 and we'll make our way to where we're going to study tonight in verse 6. Verse 4, love suffers long. It's not monkey see, monkey do. It's not return evil for evil. Instead, it says, I'll press the pause button and I will not return evil for evil. Instead, I will return good for evil. And that's why there's that conjunction, and is kind. And that word kind there is not just being polite, although that's a good thing to be. That's not what this word is talking about. This is talking about that when someone does something that hurts us, instead of retaliating against them, we press the pause button and say, let me look into their life and see something useful that I can do to help them at this time that hopefully would even help them get to heaven. Third, it does not envy. And we, we've talked about, can we really get to the point, and we know we can or God wouldn't command it, are we to that point where we can be around other people that they do what we do, and they even do what we think we're pretty good at doing, and they do it better than us? And can we say, I'm fine with that. I'm not envious of them. I'm thankful for them. I'll be the one that congratulates them. I'll be the one that sincerely thanks God for them at night. And that's what we all ought to strive to become. People that will not leap out there and be envious. Think how miserable it is because there are always going to be people around us that do a better job than us. Why do we want to go through life being envious of them? Instead, let's find the place that God gives us. And let's serve realizing God's not comparing us to each other. Why are we going around and comparing ourselves to each other? God gives you the ability and even in the measure of that ability that he wants you to have. And God will give you the opportunities he wants you to have. And now let's just line up and let's be faithful. That's what God asks us to be, is to be faithful. Love does not envy, but notice it does not parade itself. In other words, it doesn't live in such a way that we provoke envy in other people's lives. We don't go around and parade ourselves. We don't go around and brag. I can't remember if I said this to you when, when we were studying this a few weeks ago, but I read either before or after during that, that one fellow said that he stopped bragging and complaining on Facebook, and he realized he had nothing to post. Now, when we think about the next one, he says, is not puffed up. And this puffed up is the attitude. It really begins internal because it's an attitude of arrogance. It's literally the way we view ourselves. And remember, we've talked over and over about the fact that when we really are arrogant, it blinds us to seeing God for who he really is, it blinds us for seeing others with the worth and the value that they really have. And it blinds us for seeing us who we are because when we're arrogant, we see ourselves as we're big, mighty, and important instead of seeing ourselves humbly and seeing others in an exalted way and seeing God in a most reverent way. That ties in to the very next one where he says, does not behave rudely. See, if we don't have that attitude of arrogance, it's a lot easier to not be rude. Because you remember, rude is that idea that says, I don't care how what I'm about to do affects you. And in America, we love to cry out the word rights. I have my right. I bought this, this ticket for this seat in this theater. I can do whatever I want. I bought this house and this lot and this land. I'll do whatever I want. I pay taxes and I drive on this road and, and I'll do whatever. Well, you just go filling in the blanks. And you know what? Someone that loves is not going to be rude. And someone that's lo that loves and is not rude will pause and say, it doesn't matter if I bought this hotel room tonight. I need to think about what I'm about to do. How's it going to affect those around me? It doesn't matter if I paid for this house. How, if what I'm about to do, how's it going to affect everyone around me? Why would we do that? Well, we wouldn't fleshly nature. 
The carnal nature about us wouldn't do that. But if we were going to say, I'm going to live by a higher standard. I'm going to live by the calling that God gives me. What does God give me? The calling to love. I am going to consider others. And then notice along those lines, and, and I really think this one right here is really the heart of every one of them. And, and that might be, uh, you know, that could be debatable. And if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. But this one right here where he says, does not seek its own. That's the heart of it. This love that he's talking about is all about realizing that we don't take on this arrogant nature that I'm more important than everybody and I'm more important than God. But instead it says, you know what? Life is not all about me. Life is about me becoming a servant of God. Becoming a servant of others. And when we do that, I believe all these other characteristics, uh, it is possible for us to find our way and learn them and practice them. But listen, if we can't get this one, it's not going to work. And then that leads us to the next one where he says, is not provoked. If someone is selfish, you better believe they're going to be quickly provoked. And listen, this idea that says, well, it's just, it's just genetic. My dad had a short temper and I have a short temper. I'd say it's probably conditional. Your dad was selfish and you're selfish. Listen, people that are unselfish are not easily provoked. Now put that in genetics however you want. That's a fact. Unselfish people are not easily provoked. But when I think that it's mine, if you start crowding in on what's mine, I'm going to be quickly provoked. But if I realize... You know, life isn't about me. And I look and I view life through the lenses of how can I serve you? What can I do for you? And I know in words that's easy to say. It's a whole different thing to go out and live that. But that's what love is. All 15 of these descriptions are verbs that put us into action. In other words, they're doing. Are we going to do these things? Now, Notice, though, the very end of five, and it's what we studied last, and that is, thinks no evil. And I mentioned to you in, in the New King James translation, I love the way the New King James translates most of these. But this right here, I, I feel like it's really hard to understand what the original language is teaching from this particular translation. And several of your translations will probably say something like, it doesn't keep an account or it doesn't keep a record of. And that is a much better translation of this. What he's saying there is he's saying that, that love doesn't go around keeping account of, oh, I remember what you did to me last month, and I'm not going to forget it. And I remember what you did to me last year, and I'm not going to forget it. Love says, you know what? I'm wiping the slate clean. I'm not going through life keeping score and keeping up with who I want to seek vengeance against and keeping up with who I want to be mad at and keeping up with who owes me this because they mistreated me here. He says, love just doesn't go around keeping an account like that. And you remember in that particular sermon, if you were here, uh, remember we, we looked in an accounts ledger, accounts receivable ledger of, of my, my great uncle's country store. And we could look where people bought things on credit and they, they owed. It went down in the accounts. Well, how many times do we do that? Somebody mistreats us in our mind, we write it down. I'm going to keep an account of that. Love does not keep a record of that. So the rest of the time we have, let's spend it on these next two. Notice, if you will, verse 6. This is what love does not do. 
Love does not rejoice. Remember I asked you at the beginning what makes you happy, what, what brings joy into your life? Here's what love doesn't do. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. And iniquity is another way to talk about unrighteousness. There is a righteousness, a standard that is right. And there is a, a way that is unrighteous. Love, if we love God as we should, love others as we should, love ourselves as we should, we do not rejoice. We don't find a... a Great, that's good, I'm excited about that. We don't find that when it comes to unrighteousness. I don't know if that strikes you as challenging or not, but I suggest to you, if you'll stop and think about it and study it over, it becomes very challenging. There's a lot of people in this room, and I don't doubt our sincerity, but I tell you this, you could line up a lot of sins that we would all look at and say, I wouldn't do that, no, I wouldn't do that, no, I wouldn't do that, no, I don't do that, no, I don't do that, and you put it on TV and we enjoy watching it. Isn't that interesting? We'd say we wouldn't practice it, but yet we rejoice in iniquity. Look with me, if you will, to Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, he gives the last half of the chapter how we can fall away from God. And that's a powerful study within itself, starting at verse 21. And so they moved eventually to idolatry. And then he talks about how they moved into homosexuality. And then in 29, he just mentions sexual immorality at a, as a broad term. And then he gives many, many sins in this list in 29, 30, 31. Um, I don't know if i read them all here, but like wickedness, covetousness, malicious, I skip down to 30, backbiters, haters of God, boasters of inventors. Look at the end of 30. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving parents. I threw that in for you. Unforgiving, unmerciful. Notice 32. Who knowing what? The righteous judgment. Now what are we studying about? We're studying about individuals who do not rejoice in iniquity. In other words, they don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Well, what's God's judgment going to be? God's judgment is going to be a righteous judgment. So stop and think about that. I know this is elementary, but think about this. On the day of judgment, there's going to be a standard. And it's not going to be God saying, I just feel good about you. There is a standard. It's stated over and over in Scripture. God's standard on the day of judgment is righteousness. Now, that's why we need grace. Because there's nobody here that can stand before God and be found completely righteous. So that's why we need grace. But what is this standard that we are to live by? Avoid what is unrighteous. Live what is righteous. Why? When you drop back to Romans, the first chapter and verse 18, you see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and what? Unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is what brings vengeance. The wrath of God is what brings eternal condemnation. The wrath of God is stirred against what? Unrighteousness. And he gives these lists of sins, and notice how he explains it in 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those, I'm back to the first chapter, verse 32 of Romans. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. You remember Romans 6 and 23? The wages of sin is death. So that's what he's saying right here. Those that practice sin, worthy of death. But now notice the next statement. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's sin. Sin will bring death. 
And then you say, well, I, I wouldn't even do those sin. And he would say, well, you also need to stop and think about how do you view it? Will you approve it? And he says, if you approve it, you're in the same category as those that do it. It's worthy of death. Listen, brethren. We've got to think long and hard about the standard of righteousness before we say to someone, oh, I wouldn't do it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If God said there's something wrong with it, we ought to have an attitude that says, I wouldn't do it, and I want to prove anyone to do it. That's what he's talking about. What is love? Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't look at, at someone participating in sin and says, well, that's entertaining. That's good. I wouldn't do it, but that's good for them. No, not at all. Now tie that in, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We went over this, so I'm going to make this one quick, but it's several weeks ago, and it fits perfect with this point. And I want us to see this because we studied through 1 Corinthians for so many weeks. You remember 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, we have the man who had taken his father's uh, wife, and now he's in this sexually immoral relationship. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, it's page 1015, the Bible is in the pews there, 1015. And he even says that the Gentiles, in other words, the heathens wouldn't even do this. Why were they doing this? Look at verse 2. And you are puffed up. You see the problem here? You remember, we've already studied tonight. Love is not puffed up. And he says, I tell you your problem, you don't love these individuals. That's interesting because they would probably say they do love them. They would probably say, that's why we accept them. We love them so much. And he would say, no, no, no. You don't love them if you're doing that. If you're accepting them, you don't really love them. It's your arrogance that's causing you to accept their sin. Because if you really loved them, would you encourage them to stay in a situation that is going to separate them from God for an eternity? We'll look at a verse about that in just, just a moment. But I'd like for you to skip down in verse 2 when he says, and you are puffed up. He's talking to the church there. He's not talking to, to the brother that has this wife and they're in this immoral situation. He's talking to the church when he says you're puffed up. And look what he says again in verse 6, talking to the church again. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Apparently, they were glorying in the fact Look at us. Look how we welcome everyone. Come as you are. No. He says, you should have told those people they needed to repent if you love them. Your arrogance is treating them in such a way that they're fine. What if they stood on the day of judgment right now? Let that sink in. The people that live around you that you act like everything's fine with them... What if they stood before God on the day of judgment right now? Have you been accepting their sin? There's so many passages we go to. Let's go to 2 Corinthians real quick. And, uh, and then, but we've, we've got to move on. But 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> Verse, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, and Paul's right there. You see what Paul's saying? Everybody's going to stay on the day of judgment. They're going to receive a sentence based upon how they lived. And now he's making a transition and he says, knowing. In other words, knowing that fact that everybody I know is going to stand on the day of judgment, knowing that, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God and I also trust are well known to your conscience. You see what Paul's saying there? Paul says, I can't rejoice in someone else's sin when I realize that they've got to stand with that sin before God on the day of judgment. And they'll hear, depart from me, and they'll live separated into condemnation forever. And, and I'm supposed to just look the other way? Or I'm supposed to rejoice that it's not me doing it and it's you doing it? Now, place that in your mind in the framework of love. If we really love someone, we will think how our influence impacts their eternity. I know we've all heard the illustrations. I'm not trying to give you an illustration. I'm talking about real life here. What about that coworker that we've been close to for so many years, that family member we've been close to for so many years, and they stand before God on the day of judgment, and they look over at us and say, you knew about iniquity? And you acted like it was cool with you? That I did this? What are we going to do? Are we, are we going to stand there and say, yeah, I wouldn't have done that, but I thought it was cool for you. We think it's cool for them to be separated from God for an eternity? I wouldn't do it. pay raise, sports team winning, what brings joy to your life? It's fine for some of those things to bring joy, but can you honestly say truth? When I learn truth, when I teach truth, when I live truth, and when I encourage other people to live truth, that brings joy into my life. I hope we all can say that. I hope we all can say that. Notice how he says it here in verse 6. We are in 2 John and we're in verse 6. This is love. Now isn't that interesting? Here we have God saying, let me give you another description of love. Sure, we've been studying 1 Corinthians 13. He says here in John, let me tell you what love is. This is love that we walk. That's our daily conduct, our behavior. That we walk according to his commandments. And notice how he's going to flip it around now. This is the commandment. 
that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is truth. Walk according to the commandments of God. What's the commandments? This is the commandments. You need to walk in them. Love is the commandment. Are we willing to learn it and teach it? But it is also love is walking in the commandment. Learn it. Live it. Teach it. Encourage other people to live it. Listen, we're fooling ourselves if we say we love our children and we don't spend a lot of time teaching our children the commandments of God. Love is teaching the commandments. Love is teaching our children how to live the commandments. Someone as our sister this morning is baptized into Christ. Who among us is going to love her enough to teach her the commandments and to help her walk those commandments? We don't really love unless we love the truth. That's why John could say, and let's go to the third John, just one more page over in your Bible, and look at verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy. We've been studying about joy tonight. What brings joy into your life? Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but does rejoice in truth. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You hear what John's saying? John says, I love my children. That's, that's, that's the same thing. I want my children to walk in truth. I love them. Do you love yourself? We're commanded to love ourselves. It's part of the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do we love ourselves? If we love ourselves, we're going to say, I love myself enough that I want to learn the truth and I'm going to walk in it. Do we love others? Do we love them enough to say, I want to teach the truth and I want to encourage people to live truth? You know, some truth's not easy to live. Matthew 18. If I ask a simple true and false question, is Matthew 18 true? You remember what Matthew 18 is? It's where we're commanded when we have a problem with a brother, we go individually to that brother and we talk to him about the problem we have. Do you believe that's true? And do you love your brother enough that you practice truth? And when someone comes to you and wants to gossip, do you love them enough to say, I'm not going to gossip with you about it, but I will encourage you because I love you to practice Matthew 18. You need to go talk to them. That's, that's this love lived out. Do we love the truth? Or what about generosity? It's a command for us not just to give. It's a command for us to give sacrificially. Do you love the truth? Do you love the truth enough to do it? Or what about praying for our enemies? Remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew the 5th chapter? We are commanded to pray for our enemies and it's right along with the same verse that he says, love your enemies. And then he teaches us to pray for them and to bless them and to do good for them. 
Do we believe that's true? Or did God just tell a lie there? If it's true, do we love it? Do we learn it? Do we live it? Because if we learn it and live it, we love God, we love ourselves, and we love others. What about Revelation 2 and 10? Be faithful unto death. That's a commandment. Do you love that? And are you committed? Nothing's going to turn you away from God? Do you live the fact that nothing's going to turn you away from God? And even just the simple fact of telling the truth. Ephesians 4 and 25, we're commanded to simply tell the truth. Do we do it? Do we love that? Do we love others enough to do it, even when it hurts what we're about to tell them, but we do it because it's truth? You know, we could go on and on. The simple point is God gives us a ton of commandments, and every one of them He gives us is not to burden our life. He's given them literally because it blesses our life. It's boundaries. That's what we need in our life. And so if we love God, we're saying, God, I trust you. I trust your ways are righteous. And so I do not love unrighteousness, but I do love righteousness. I will not rejoice in unrighteousness. I will rejoice in righteousness. God, I love you that much. I love others that much. I love myself that much. I want to challenge you this week. In your entertainment... If in that entertainment there's some sin taking place, will you cut it off? I'm not rejoicing in sin. Can you say that to yourself and to your God? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to rejoice in sin. You're listening to a song and it's about sin. I'm not going to have entertainment that's sinful. Someone says, well, that's going to cut a lot of things out. Remember, we talked several weeks ago that if you and I are serious about practicing 1 Corinthians 13, our life is going to be different. Major difference. People say, I don't see a big difference in a Christian and somebody's not a Christian. I guarantee you, you and I live 1 Corinthians 13, there'll be a major difference in your neighbor that's a good neighbor but not a Christian than you. And when your brother and sister comes up to you, will you love them enough to encourage them to live the commandments of God? Do you love yourself enough to live the commandments of God? This love is action. And the good thing is, we don't have to be perfect. Because if we did, there'd be no hope for any one of us. But we do need to seek repentance and forgiveness and go back to that standard and say, this is what I want to be. God, please forgive me when I failed. And I really do want to seek your righteousness. Tonight, how can we help each other? If you're ready to become a Christian, we'd love to encourage you. We'd love to participate that, in that with you and, and see you immersed into Christ. Maybe you have fallen away and you want to come back home. We'd love to say, not lighthearted, we'd love to say to you that we love you and we want to do what's right and best toward you in any way that we can encourage you. However we could pray for you, we'd like to be able to do that. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we're hurting. Maybe you just need something more private and there'll be a couple elders after the service back in the library if you want to go and talk with them. But tonight, I want to encourage us. Camp out in 1 Corinthians 13 and let's truly seek to fulfill this great instruction of love that God has given us.